The second day of session is a tough crowd. You look out and see a lot of frowns and yawns. You don't have to frown. You have to yawn. Another poem by Britt Posmer. This one's called Letting Go. Letting Go. There are things we want to say, but don't. Like this. The ones we hoped would love us, but didn't, don't matter now. The ones we hoped would love us, but didn't, don't matter now. We have to stop trying to stretch them to cover our holes. Like a blanket that shrunk as we grew large and never kept us warm. Like a blanket that shrunk as we grew large and never kept us warm, although we gave ourselves completely to believing it did. Say, let go to the world and to all that clings beyond its time. And then again, in a whisper, to yourself. Courage is a choice, and defenselessness can be a revelation. There are things we want to say but don't like this. The ones we hoped would love us but didn't don't matter now. Say, let go to the world and to all that clings beyond its time. And then again, in a whisper, to yourself. Courage is a choice, and defenselessness can be a revelation. Say, my heart spills milk, and know you mean amen, amen, amen. Maybe the most important thing that can be said about the Dharma is that we have to love ourselves enough to stop being complicit in our own unhappiness. To care for yourself, to respect yourself enough to stop being complicit in your own unhappiness, or worse, because unhappiness is only one thing we're complicit in. Something in us can sink its teeth into an event, a memory, a belief, and like a rabid dog won't let up five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, a lifetime. Something in us is so invested in being in relationship to some now wisp of a dream of a memory event that it seems like it's made of iron, but it's really just made of mind. All the techniques, all the methods, all of it is infused with meaning when we love, care, respect ourselves enough to no longer be complicit in our own suffering. And I'm not saying that's something you do once and then you're done with it, but that invitation is, that invitation is always 
we're exercising this muscle of letting go. Actually, clinging, grasping, being a suffering being is an action, but letting go, what can we say about it? If someone were in your family were to ask you, I've read a lot about Buddhism and they say that one should let go of the past and let go of the future, what would you say? How would you do that? What is it that allows things to let go of us? How can the dog release its, its jaw? A lot of what we hold on to is like barbed wire. Truly. I think the more we go into practice, the more we see that things that before were just normal, the normal um, contractions of identity, the normal indignities of being human that we thought were not optional, we know they are optional, and so we know what barbed wire is. To say it more simply, why let go? How to let go? Notice how much it hurts. Feel what it is to be in contraction, to be in opposition, to be in a state of ingratitude towards life. Feel what that is. Just like we pull our hand out of a fire, it starts to become that easy. Just like we put on a jacket when it's freezing, it starts to become that easy. So we let go and we arrive at this place. And we arrive at this moment in session with whatever faith we have. And in those moments when the mind is quiescent, faith is there. It's not some neon Vegas sign announcing that you're a true believer of Buddhism. Faith is a quiet confidence. It's a quiet continuing to follow the golden thread, the golden thread of practice. We've stepped into a, a practice that is honest enough to make you no guarantees. Except that you could take your hand out of the fire. No guarantees. There's a thread we could follow. It's subtle, actually. 
It's not very loud. The world is very loud. The world is very much proclaiming a quick fix, an escape hatch. This invitation is to take our hand out of that fire and see, see what happens. But we follow this one golden thread. It's been followed by so many path wanderers before us. And there will be so many people who follow it after us. whether or not we are complicit in making our own suffering, in amplifying our own pain, the world is ferociously unstable. And in that, it's utterly predictable. There's fire all around. It's part of the honesty of the Dharma. There's fire all around, inside and outside. Ferociously unstable, ferociously impersonal. Nothing to hang your hat on. Zero. Zip. Nothing to hang your hat on. Except what's left when you don't hang your hat on anything. That's the golden thread. So the world is utterly predictable in being ferociously unstable. And I think all of you are, have lived enough to know this is not abstract. And so what else to do but stitch together somehow with practice? As a little pessimistic sounding, there was one famous Lama who said, Buddhism is making the best out of a bad situation. It's one side of the coin. So we stitch it all together, and I think we can call this practice love. What is love? Exactly what we're doing. Figuring out some way to pull our hand out of the fire, because we're surrounded by fire. What is love? It's what we're doing here. Single-mindedness is an element of this one golden thread.
And single-mindedness is what power we have in the midst of this reality. The word monastery is related to the root monos, which means alone, single, singleness, unified. Shin, a gathered heart-mind, the heart-mind in singleness. Single-mindedness is the gate to all the liberations. Single-mindedness makes claim on the scattered energies that are carried off by our divergent uh, intentions. Everybody sitting here has uh, some affinity with the Dharma. You have some true desire to pull your hand out of the fire. You have some sense that not hanging your hat on that which is ferociously unstable is a good idea, better than a good idea. And yet you also have doubt, if you're like me. You also have part of you that would like to just say, yeah, so what? I'll make a little nest somewhere. I'll find my little corner. Padded enough. Comfortable enough. It'll be over soon enough. And that's what it is to be a human being. It's to be of diverse nature. Sometimes somebody sits here and imagines somebody else is such a pure practitioner. They never have any doubts and they never, I don't know, what are the fantasies? Their mind doesn't wander. They always like their teacher. They always, they look at the ordained people and they think, oh, the ordained people are just so dedicated to Dharma. True and there's a lot that goes on underneath a robe. There's a lot that goes on in order to keep wearing a robe of necessity. We are consenting to single-mindedness. It doesn't feel good most of the time. Or we could say it doesn't feel good until it does. We are continually channeling our energy into this liberation. Sometimes that's very, very, um, the desire to move away and slide into the old body-mind is such a thick and strong habit, it almost seems impossible. Then we're held by the Sangha. We're gathered back by our own past vows. The vows we make today arise later on as a force of reminder, as a wind of intention. So single-mindedness is the invitation, it's the challenge, and it's the empowerment. And this means to moment by moment be alive and with it whatever you are doing.
It means to anchor down and not be swayed by the winds of distraction as best we can. Can never be better than it is. In other words, the best effort you can make is the best effort you can make. It grows in time. Single-mindedness. There's a poem. This is by my current teacher named TK. And he's reflecting on uh, early in his practice life. My mind, too, was consumed by inconsistency and impulse. That's the material that most of us are working with. My mind, too, was consumed by inconsistency and impulse. First I tried bridle and bit, but force is a poor trainer at best. Sometimes we feel very stiffened by session, or we feel kind of squished, or, or like the, the practice is making us rigid. But it's our own approach to the practice that does that. From my vantage point, this is a very gentle, very um, kind container of practice. It has walls. In those walls, I can relax. It's like a, a wall. I can lean back against it because it's firm. First I tried bridle and bit, but force is a poor trainer at best. Love is a bitless rider. Make the, a jump or a leap from forcing oneself, from this being not a work of joy but a chore, to something that you just long and love to put yourself into. Love is a bitless writer. Later, wisdom goes without tack altogether. Sun and moon cross the sky. Days and nights pass. Births and deaths rise and fall like waves. It's all passing by so quickly. is a lifetime. The opportunity to live a life not complicit in one's own unhappiness is dwindling very quickly. Sun and moon cross the sky, days and nights pass, births and deaths rise and fall like waves, but true passion cannot bear the vagaries of this coming and going. Does your faith resonate? Can you feel this in your own 
body, in your own heart, that there is something beyond all this coming and going. Ending suffering is just one way of stating what the Dharma is. But what are you invited into at the end of that suffering? Can you feel that? Is there some organ of knowing in you? That tells you there is something, something deeper, something reliable, something not caught up in all this ferocious, flimsy change. True passion cannot bear the vagaries of this coming and going. In other words, to be indifferent to our awakening is itself a kind of uh, meanness. To be indifferent to the longing to be free is a kind of meanness. He says, love wishes the unchanging. Love wishes the unchanging. Muscles and sinew can flow in wisdom and love. The teacher, awareness, enjoys the changeless, while the disciple body lives appearance as offering. Form and divinity untouched by the words two or one. Ever since mind fell in love with the mysterious one, grasping at things of the world makes no sense. I cling to the changeless. A vine grows up the post outside my hut. It understands its flowers are offerings as well. Just feel what's in here. Just let this thing in our chests speak. I don't know what it's saying, but just feel it. Just listen to it. Practice is being a servant of the heart's deeper truth. 
It's putting it above what we discover to be lesser concerns. Now, this is not worldly versus spiritual here. This is not saying your life doesn't matter, but Buddhism does. It's not so crass. Releasing the grudge, releasing the prejudice, the old salts, a thousand times, 10,000 times for the sake of harmony. You have to esteem harmony. You have to esteem love. Turning away from the entertaining daydream, releasing the cold comfort of whatever idea we've settled on about ourselves, about this thing or that thing. So that we can meet this heart-mind unsmothered by all of that old stuff. Resisting the allure of the drowsy and murky retreat from what's happening. A hundred hours, a thousand hours, ten thousand hours. Saying no to the invitation to be someone who is excused from stepping up. From stepping in, from stepping past. So that suffering may be extinguished. So that the Dharma may actually be manifested. So the single-mindedness that we're invited to in practice is a work of love. Traditionally, or at least it seems, if you read the books, that people in all contemplative traditions were motivated by teachings on how rough existence is, the ferociousness of samsara. Yeah, there's an old metaphor that to encounter the teachings that could liberate you is as rare as a dolphin leaping through a hula hoop tossed out on the ocean once every hundred years, or something like that. <laughs> there are billions of people on this earth whose lives are passing in a flash, how many of them will encounter such teachings, be interested in such teachings, have the lifestyle, the health, the support to practice such teachings, and continue to practice such teachings? Extraordinarily rare. That's presented to you and I because we could be such a person. We're in proximity, but it's not a sealed deal. It's not a sealed deal. I woke up for years in training here. Um, I woke up in a kind of panic attack. My heart pounding with this anxiety that I might die 
without knowing what I am. That I might miss the chance. The chance is slipping by, truly, for everybody. If we look at it in the world, generally speaking, this mode of teaching has not been very effective. (laughs) We're one with the present. the effects of our actions are largely obscure to us. And so fear of what could happen or fear of a missed opportunity, it rarely really penetrates the heart. We're one with this moment. We are woven into this moment. There is no two ways about it. So how about learning to love the flavors of practice? Maybe a better strategy. As you sit, as you practice, taste the flavor of that. Taste it right now. The flavor of what it is you're doing. We have to enjoy the flavor of what we're doing here and know it as more satisfying and more deep than fun, excitement, novelty, stimulation. And our bodies tell the truth about this. You might be in the midst of your day two stuff. Maybe not the best time. But in general, our bodies tell the truth about this. I want to invite you into some of the the qualities of practice. And see if if you can love them. Love might be a strong word. Enjoy them. If you can savor, appreciate them. And we can start with stillness. through relaxation, let the body come to relative stillness. Stillness containing the expansion and contraction of breath, pumping of the heart. Let your mind dissolve into that stillness like a sugar cube in warm water. And from the inside, just taste that rest. 
drink the rest of stillness with your body. And again and again, let the mind dissolve like a sugar cube in warm water into the stillness of the body. And attune to the silence that's apparent when the mind closes its mouth. Even for moments at a time, let that silence flourish. Let it, let it bloom. Let it bloom in the, the light of your stillness. Let your being drink that silence. Lap it up. vast, edgeless silence. Everybody can taste this right now. Taste how that silence is alive with energy. It's vibrant. Learning to love the textures of embodiment. So again, return to being the body. And one of the things, one of the reasons we sit in this posture in this way with repetition is so we can undo the top-down relationship to the body. Somebody says embodiment, and we think, well, how can I get down there? We are this body from one perspective. Imagine the body is like a chamber. And just turn on the dimmer switch of awareness. Turn up the light from within it. And just feel. 
Just feel this galaxy of thrumming, pulsing, humming vibration. Where does that thrumming, humming vibration and the silence meet? How do they touch? They do touch, but it's not inside and it's not outside that they touch. It's said in Tantra that this body is a mystery so profound that lifetimes of practice could not plumb its depths. Learning to love the flavor of mystery. I'm going to offer you a little technique that I practice, and some of you I've shared it with before. Could be powerful. How did the world lose its color? Because we know too much. Because our mind is so tethered to its file cabinets of dusty old knowledge. I think, at least for me, one of the things that's thirsted for in spiritual practice is, is wonder, is mystery. It left, and I know that that's wrong. It departed, and I know it doesn't have to be that way. So this practice, you could try. Is to say quietly to yourself, I don't know. I don't know. You could whisper it now if you like. And you say it from the place of its truth. It's not, I don't know. I don't know about this. This is like brainwashing. I was thinking about how science has inadvertently made us believe we understand the universe when all we have done is moved around incomprehensible forces and combinations that produce desirable results. 
there was a time when there was no wheel. It wasn't as long ago as we think. I don't know. And wherever there is the crusty, jaded relationship, you can add in that particular thing, especially in Sashin about your practice. I don't know how my practice is going. You speak it from its true place, feel its truth, and just rest in the wake of proclaiming it. Or how about, I don't know who I am. When Emperor Wu received Bodhidharma and asked Bodhidharma, well, who are you to be such an acclaimed spiritual teacher? He was expecting him to say something fancy that you might find in a Tibetan Buddhist book. Bodhidharma said, I don't know. If you find yourself in your practice in a place of staleness, another entry into this is just to ask, what is this? What is this? When we really ask, or when we really say, I don't know, we're at least beginning to take a step away from the crowded, hot, sweaty room of what we think we know. We're at least beginning, we're at least trying by asking, what is this? It's like a koan. Some people are working on different forms of koans where we're basically saying, who the hell is meditating? What is going on here? To even begin to ask starts to melt the assumption. So the flavor of mystery. We can learn to savor and love the feeling of love. If you like right now, feel your heart. Your physical heart. Feel within the core of your physical heart. And don't label, don't label and don't look for anything, but just feel what's there in the core of your heart. What else is there? What else? 
aus. As you feel this core of your heart, imagine there are some kind of tendrils extending to every other heart in the room. Golden threads. Each beat of your heart, imagine, feel pulse of light go out from your heart to every other heart. Being with whatever's there, pleasant or unpleasant. Whether they come from a mouth or a brain, from this person to that person, no words are really adequate. But Rumi's pretty great. I'm going to end with a poem by Rumi called Thinking in the Heart's Mystical Way. Mystical is that realm of I don't know. It's not necessarily sparkly Reiki angels, crystal chakra conventions. Rumi says, a peaceful face twists with the poisonous nail of thinking. We relate that to ourselves. It takes one, and there we are in that realm, twisted. What does Cohen Edjo said? Don't sit like a hell dweller or a hungry ghost. It's not so easy. We enter that realm, some of us. A peaceful face twists with the poisonous nail of thinking. A golden spade sinks into a pile of dung. The situation of Buddha nature somehow entering into this body-mind confusion. A golden spade sinks into a pile of dung. Suppose you loosen an intellectual knot. The sack is empty. You've grown old trying to untie such tightenings. 
So loosen a few more. Why not? There is a big one fastened at your throat, the problem of whether you're in harmony with that which has no definition. Solve that. It seems in this poem he was talking to like a philosopher or somebody like that. You examine substance and accidents. You waste your life making subject and verb agree. You edit hearsay. Have you ever noticed how much the mind is occupied with revisiting conversations or practicing for future conversations or imagining if I would have said something different then life would have unfolded in a better way? All of that noise. You waste your life making subject and verb agree. You edit hearsay. You study artifacts and think you know the maker, so proud of having figured the derivation. Like a scientist, you collect data and put facts together to come to a conclusion. Mystics arrive at what they know differently. People who wish to know what is beyond the discriminating mind arrive at what they know differently. They lay a head upon a person's chest and drift into the answer. That's like a koan for me. I don't know what he means. It's compelling. They lay a head upon a person's chest and drift into the answer. Thinking gives off smoke to prove the existence of fire. A mystic sits inside the burning. There are wonderful shapes in rising smoke that imagination loves to watch, but it's a mistake to leave the fire for that filmy sight. Stay here at the flame's core. Stay here at the flame's core. 